Thank you, Wyatt. My name is Dee. I'm one of the pastors here at the church, and uh, as I have often said before, I feel very privileged to uh, open up God's Word and uh, join with you in the journey as we explore what God has to say to each of us, and then what God has to say to us collectively as a church. Um, a, a week ago, we um, were looking at uh, a series that was wrapping up that had to do with material that related to who we are as a church, our identity, uh, what it means to be part of this fellowship. A passage that I referenced, it was not the text, but I referenced it, was Hebrews 11.1. That particular passage says, faith is the substance of things hoped for, the evidence of things not yet seen. The title of this message is Unseen Evidence. It kind of is a bridge from some of the things we were talking about into this story that surrounds the writings of the prophet Joel. Evidence of things not seen. Faith that leans into those things that have not yet happened, but become by their actions the result of faith, kind of the substance or the, the tangible hope that this is coming to pass. Faith put into action. Faith that chooses to act on the beliefs and values that we have that propel us into the future. Faith that participates in allowing the kingdom of heaven to come through the ways in which we participate with God in that hopefulness filled with anticipation. Joel is a interesting book. It's sometimes called one of the um, content books. You have to go to the table of contents to find where Joel is. And so it's just a short three chapters. It is one of the minor prophets. In, Hebrew, in the Hebrew, I think it's four chapters, but our division makes it a three-chapter book. And it's, it's most of it's written in the poetry form, which really makes it even shorter than three chapters might indicate. It's tough to give much of a content or context, pardon me, to Joel, in that we don't know much about when it was written. There are some internal indicators, the references that are made and aren't made narrow it down to somewhere within about 500 years. <laughs> but we really aren't certain. We're given Joel's father's name right at the beginning, but it doesn't help a whole lot because we don't know anything about Joel's father. And so we're left trying to understand the message of this prophet just based on what the prophet says. And the prophet speaks about a, a time for celebration, but that time for celebration doesn't make a whole lot of sense until you understand what has led to this call to celebration, the tragedy that's happened in the land. So we're going to come back to this and use Joel as a powerful tool, at least I think, to help us with another issue that is facing us right now. I brought with me my mail-in ballot. 
Oh, yeah, anxiety just kind of spread across the group right here. Haven't filled it out yet, um, but I'm pretty excited about telling you how to vote this morning. It is fascinating. I, if you've gotten yours, it's a four-pager here. There are 31 measures and propositions that we have to vote on, which is why I thought we voted for officials to do all of this work that now we get to do. So I'm not sure then why we vote for the officials, what they're going to have to vote on after we've done all the voting on these propositions. Nevertheless, my ballot has 10 elections, about 22 or so candidates that are mentioned in those elections, and then all of these wonderful proposals to read in the booklets and background information that some of you have been mailed that I'm trusting you've read, read every word of what's been mailed to you. And so I'm not going to tell you how to vote just yet. I'm going to leave that till a little bit later because I don't want anybody to be walking out at the beginning of the message. You can walk out at the end if you would like. To get to that, I'd like to start with telling you something that will, I hope, help us get there. Um, it's going to take me back and maybe take you back. I've referenced a few times one of the important locations in my childhood growing up. My grandmother and grandfather had a summer cabin that was on a lake not too far from Kalamazoo, Michigan, just outside a small little town called Vicksburg. This lake called Indian Lake had a main road on the south side of the lake, and the lakefront cabins were just north of that road, looking out over onto the lake. And then on the south side of the road was a Nazarene campgrounds with a tabernacle and a dining hall and all kinds of cabins for the kids and teens that would come for boys camp and girls camp and mid-high and senior high camp. And so there would be weeks where the grounds would just be alive with activity and people and things taking place. And then there'd be other weeks in the summer where we'd visit and just be quiet and the campgrounds would be empty and the only people on the lake were the people who had a cabin and happened to be there during that week. My grandfather died before my dad got married, so I never knew him at all. For the most part, I knew my grandmother in that setting. We've made a couple visits to what she did during the year, but almost all of my interactions with her were during the summer. And then on those uh, summer days, when somehow, and I'm not exactly sure how we'd get it, but we'd have just a little bit of change that was given to us, one of the great exciting endeavors was to make our way from my grandmother's cabin down about a dozen houses to Leopard's grocery store. Mr. and Mrs. Leopard lived behind the grocery store. The grocery store probably wasn't any bigger than the stage. You could go in and when you'd walk in, the, the entrance to the grocery store was right on the street. Their home was right behind it. 
And behind that was their yard and the dock, and they had a gas pump out by the dock. They didn't have it out front for cars. They had it out back so that the people of the lake who had motorboats could pull up to the dock and fill up their cans with uh, gasoline, and that was how the leopards took care of the community there on the lake. You'd walk up some steps on either side of the small little porch, much like this, and pull open the screen door, and as soon as you pulled open the screen door, there was like a little lever up at the top of the screen door that would ring as soon as you pulled it open. And you'd walk in, and there weren't many items. I mean, you could get milk and eggs. You could get a small selection of cleaning products, but when you walked in, at least for everybody who is my age, there were two places you wanted to go immediately. One was to the left up against the wall, and up against the wall there was a metal cooler filled with cold water that had no top on it, and you'd reach into that cold water and you'd pull out a knee-high grape, an orange crush, a black cherry soda. Every flavor you could imagine was in this little, it was like magic. Anything you wanted was there. You couldn't imagine anything that he didn't have. And you'd gaze and look and put it back down, couldn't decide which one, and likely not having enough money for both a soda and candy, you'd go to the other side behind the counter where Mrs. Leopard usually stood, and behind her was a shelf of all of the best of confectionery stuff. I mean, there were slowpoke suckers. Oh, my goodness. Some of you have no idea what it's like to stretch out a slowpoke sucker, both liter literally by time and literally by the caramel that would just stretch out from that um, wonderful treat. Right beside them were the sour apple pieces of bubble gum. Beside that were the double bubble pieces, but boy, if you're going to have a treat, you really needed to have the sour apple because they were so much better. And if you had 25 cents, you could get 25 of those. And it was pretty amazing. So it was either that or try and make a soda last as long as those things might last. That was the choice. Also behind that counter was... Another treat, it was not much of a treat for me because I didn't particularly like licorice, but good and plenty candy was back there as well. You can still get good and plenty candy. You have to look for it. It's not in most places. But for those of you who aren't familiar with it, it's a small piece of licorice that's surrounded by either a white or pink hard shell kind of coating that looks a whole lot like a capsule of medicine that you would take. And you could pretend you were taking medicine, but this had this great licorice stuff inside if you liked licorice. I understand that it is the oldest branded candy in our country. 1893, in Quaker City Confectionery Company. And then in about 1920, the advertisers came out with an amazing song and a great promotion that kind of catapulted it, Choo Choo Charlie. Some of you remember Choo Choo Charlie, not necessarily from 1920, but it lasted a long time. And one of the things that happened on this commercial with Choo Choo Charlie, 
he had the candy in the little cardboard box, and if you just shake it, it made this sound, this sound, and it would sound like a train. Even the name sounds a little bit like a train if you say it just right. Good and plenty, good and plenty, good and plenty, good and plenty. I don't like licorice at all, but I am fascinated by the candy, and a couple of times I actually bought it because I wanted to be able to shake the box and make the sound and sing along with the Choo Choo Charlie uh, song that was part of the candy. I'm not sure, to be honest with you, why this candy has lasted this long. I know that there are licorice lovers in the world. I just don't know very many of them. I had a few hands go up. That's fantastic. You must be completely underwriting all of the costs of (laughs) this poorly purchased candy that continues to survive time. But I've wondered, is it also possible what has contributed it to its longevity is that the name is genius, good and plenty. It really identifies something that drives us over and over and over again. We desire good, we desire more of it, we want plenty, and we want plenty of that. In fact, I would suggest to you that that is such a key piece of what drives the political arena in our country. We want to make sure that whatever proposal we vote for, or whatever measure we consider, or whatever politician we put in place, that they, or the proposition, preserves our good and adds to our plenty. if they could just increase for us, or at the very least, not let any of the good and plenty be taken away. That's what we want to vote for. Those are the people we want to lead us. In fact, I I would say that it, at least from my perspective, it's probably not appropriate to vilify politicians. I think they're a reflection of us. Our desire to want more and find ways to put barriers around or preserve the things that we already claim as our own. And we want people and laws that will do that for us. And I think we drive the system. So let me take you then into Joel. The passage that was read was chapter 2, verses 23 through 32. I made reference to what leads into that place. It's pretty dismal outlook that's written in the first chapter and a half. 
Joel tells of a horrific plague of locusts that come through. I, I don't know if you've ever been around when locusts make their way into an area. I mean, a handful, one, two, three, four, five, you hear them, you notice them, but locusts can come in the billions. They can travel 100 miles in a day. I was in Cincinnati when uh, the Midwest was hit with the 17-year locust. I think the last time they came through was 2013, but I remember when I was a boy, the deafening noise as you would drive down a country road and, and just hear the noise that locusts make and to see trees that were really, for all practical purposes, taken out by an army of locusts. There is in this story... A, it said it in the passage that was read. It's also at the very beginning of chapter 1. It makes reference to locusts and locusts and a bunch more locusts and all kinds of locusts. Four different references, and the reason it does that is because there are four different Hebrew words that are used for locusts. They played such an important role in the life of the Hebrew people. There were four different words for that. We don't have four different words, and so when we read it, we just translate them all locusts. There were locusts and a whole bunch of locusts, and Behind them came in some locusts, and whatever was left over, the locust came. And that's the best way we know how to translate what is a huge big deal to the people. A, a reference is made to an army of locusts, which raises the question, is locusts a metaphor for an army that actually came through and decimated the countryside and destroyed the belongings of the people and undermined everything? Or is army a metaphor for actual locusts that came through and ate up all of the trees and created such a, um, a sense of chaos, not just among the people, but that the animals languished before God, longing for some relief? And I've heard some say, it really doesn't matter which one it is, whether it was an army or whether or actual locusts that came through. And I'll have to confess, it matters a little bit to me. Let me tell you why it matters a little bit to me. If it was an army that came through and left the people in such a terrible spot, then I feel like I can kind of respond by saying, sometimes at the hands of people who make bad choices and conflict between people, what results is a disaster and we fall prey to the circumstances that play themselves out as a result of the actions that people take. Somehow that feels a little bit better in terms of resolving some of my questions and struggles than saying that this is an army of actual locusts that came through, destroyed the land, because that's an act of God. And now I have to wrestle with, well, why does God do those kinds of things to his people to let that happen? You've probably, maybe heard me say before, it was a treat in our Wednesday noon Bible study group to wrestle with a similar kind of thing along this line. 
And here's one of the core issues that confronts me in the way I think. The Hebrew people have this deep-seated, at-the-core-of-who-they-are belief in monotheism. There's just one God. There aren't a bunch of gods competing. There's just one God. And everything is under God's purview. God watches over all of God's creation. Now, that creates some problems, but the Hebrew people far prefer or believe that the problems that are created by attributing all things to God's watchful care, that the problems there are far less than a viewpoint that views good and evil as kind of in this grudge match against one another, almost like equal forces, and a lot of us who are Christians, whether we realize it or not, carry that kind of mentality. That, that God and Satan or good and evil are in this uh, struggle against one another and kind of in a race for the finish line and believe that somehow at the very end, God's going to eke out a victory by a nose and hooray, hooray, we just barely did it, but we got the victory at the end, that somehow that's the way things work, but not... Not for the Israelites. Not at all. Let us wrestle with all the questions that come up, and there are a lot of them, by saying there is one and only one God under whom and by whom all things are created and all things come to pass. Let's wrestle with some of those other questions, but hold tenaciously to the truth that God is in charge, God is trustworthy, God is faithful, and I may not understand it all, but God is. The great I am, Yahweh. So into this tragic set of circumstances, Joel the prophet says, let the people of God rejoice and celebrate because the autumn rain is coming. Not only the autumn rain, but the spring rains as well. And we're going to find that the threshing floors are going to be filled to overflowing and the vats filled to capacity with, with wine and oil. And, and it, there will be nobody who goes hungry. Well, I've got to tell you, I don't think Joel knew if the generation to whom he was speaking would see the fulfillment of all of that. But he shares the hope. And he calls us to a place of acknowledging God as creator and confessing whatever it is we might have done to have contributed to the circumstances we're in. And unless we quickly forget the circumstances that came across or the news reports that came across the airwaves within the last two weeks, those same autumn rains that bless farmers and their fields are the same rains that create floodwaters and wash away homes and take away people's possessions. It's the same rain. Lest we forget that sometimes a blessing that seems to bring such relief to some leaves others in a place where they cry out and say, oh God, where are you? Can you help? 
Well, that's part of what this passage is all about. Joel is saying there is the the circumstances that we've seen with parched land, animals that are crying out, people that are saying, oh God, but that's the problem. Not all of them are turning to God. They have been stuck in their ways and have been refusing to acknowledge God's faithfulness and trustworthiness. And it's into this place that Joel is saying, oh, turn back to God. The autumn rains will come. The spring rains will join them. But I love the line that he uses in that great and dreadful day of our Lord. What a great combination. Great and dreadful. Awesome and oh no. That's the day of the Lord. It is a promise that comes. An amazing promise. A promise that says, my spirit will be poured out on all people. Your sons and your daughters will prophesy. Your old men will dream dreams. Your young men will see visions on all of my servants, both male and female. My spirit will be poured out. This seems to me like it's the Old Testament foundation for Paul's proclamation. In Christ. There is no male nor female, no Jew nor Greek, no barbarian, Scythian, slave nor free, because it's all in Christ. One of the readings for this morning is Luke chapter 18. The passage begins in verse 9. It is the story where two people are seen praying. The Pharisee stands there, just a little bit smug, And prays, oh God, I thank you so much that I am not like. And then he begins to list all of the people that he's glad he's not like. And then, just to make his point a little clearer, he points to someone else who's praying and says, I'm so glad I'm not like that tax collector over there either. Thank you, Lord. Amen. We then have a shift of the camera over to the tax collector who says, Oh God, forgive me, a sinner. Here's what I think is the tragedy when I and I think many others read this story. Our heart unfreezes for a moment. The contrast between these two, it's so great and it's so obvious, it can't help but confront you and me. It can't help but startle you into, oh, that's uncomfortable. And for a moment, there is this recognition of, wow, the arrogance, oh, the humility before God, And it allows us to shift our posture just a little bit. Oh, God, help me to remain humble and recognize who I am in you. But I'm afraid that what happens 
is that we still are experiencing the same problem. We've just changed our position in the problem. We've frozen once again. Because now my benchmark is, oh Lord, help me not to be arrogant like the Pharisee. But keep me humble. Humble, that's a good place to be. But as long as I keep setting my benchmark where others are, I've missed the whole point of Joel. There is no benchmark on others. There's this place that says, oh God, I can't do what you've called me to do, but I know that if I turn away from you, it's Locustville all the time. It is, oh God, if I keep my trust and faith in you, then maybe in my obedience and trusting, what needs to get accomplished can get done. So let me tell you how to vote. Some of you may not take the time to do this, but at the top, there's a tiny little paragraph that says, completely darken the oval next to the candidate or vote of your choice. Completely darken the oval next to the name or option you're choosing. And then make sure you use a pen with dark ink, not red. That's how you vote. Okay, now. Let me add one little piece to this. I would like to invite you to do one more thing. Again, if you've not registered, tomorrow's the last day. I encourage you to do so. I, I look at this ballot and um, some ways in which it feels incredibly uh, daunting. At moments, I confess. It's for me, I'm not saying this is true for anyone else, but discouraging as well. But as long as my hope is in one of these things or one of these individuals, then I've completely missed the message of Joel. Where is my hope? I'd like to invite you, those who might be willing, when you vote, at the point of each oval that gets filled in, that you would say, oh God, please know, my trust is in you. I don't know if I'm getting this right, or if there is even a right in the options that are here. But I know what's not right, and that's if my trust is in any of this stuff. Because the benchmark is far too low, if that's the case. My hope has to stay in God. Oh, that great and dreadful day. Do I believe that it's in God's hands? 
am I trying once again to simply vote for that which keeps my good and gives me more plenty? Am I saying that prosperity is bad? Absolutely not. Scripture speaks about the great things of prosperity and how we work toward that. Is blessing wrong? No, we don't turn our back on the ways in which God pours out God's goodness on us. But when we begin to worship blessing or worship plenty, instead of the God that provides, then we have so undermined God's kingdom. We have so hindered God at work. We have so replaced Yahweh with something else that can never be Yahweh. The call for us is to step into a place that says, I do this because God calls us to participate as we are allowed to participate in what happens in our culture, in our country. But we're called to do it with an eye that always says, God, my faith and trust is in you, period. Here's the best I do with coloring in the oval. But God, oh Lord, you bring the reins. You, you fill the threshing floor. And at times we live in circumstances where the ground seems parched and there doesn't seem to be any water around anywhere. You are still God. And here's what I believe about this passage that very clearly says, and all who call on the name of the Lord will be saved. All who call on the name of the Lord will be saved. What does that look like? I don't exactly know what it looks like for you. I, I don't have the answer for what that promise looks like in your life. Here's what I've grown convinced of in my journey, and that is that I've seen so many people with circumstances of incredibly parched ground. Circumstances where whatever you think about the locust, it looks like the locust has come through their life and left no life behind. People in those circumstances who have called on the name of the Lord and they've been saved. And I'm not saying that for all of them there was some kind of an immediate rush of rain that changed their journey. But what is amazing to me is that it is as if they have been saved from the circumstantial circumstances of their current journey, and they were given a vision of so much more. Those are the people who, in the midst of illnesses for which there seems to be no explanation, build hospitals and set up clinics and start transforming lives. Those are the people who, in the midst of people who have no education, stepped into that parched ground and open up schoolhouses and begin teaching others so that they might have a hope for the future. Those are individuals who see in some other country hopeless situations with refugees and immigrants and go in and bring relief. They are people who are in the midst of dire circumstances and somehow have been saved from that themselves and become transforming agents. I don't know what salvation looks like for you, but I believe this promise that anyone who calls on the name of the Lord, receives from God 
eyesight that sees beyond the circumstances and brings a hope that is inexplicable, that is kingdom-driven, that doesn't get resolved by a singular oval on a ballot sheet, but says emphatically, my trust is in the God who oversees it all. Only one whose provisions are there, whose love conquers, and who draws me into a future that is always blessed and honored by the one who created it all. Oh, God. We need your help. These moments, these days, seem daunting in a variety of ways. There are some people here this morning, Lord, I'm convinced that they are living in the locust country and God, I pray that somehow this morning there would just be a spring of living water that they could have a taste, a taste of your presence, a taste of your provision. Help them to drink this morning of the fountain you provide. I don't know that it will mean that immediately the circumstances shift but let what happens within their heart shift it to a place of repose in you, of peace in your presence, of, of hope in what you provide. Father, sometimes there are no words to articulate what the tears mean. What the caught breath in the base of the throat signifies. Sometimes it just signifies helplessness, God. Sometimes it feels, Lord, like things are just out of our reach, but the truth is you are never out of our reach, so maybe that should tell us that our hope is in the wrong thing because you are always within reach. And so, Lord, we confess. Forgive us, Lord, for the ways in which we have reached for the wrong things. Sometimes unwilling to do the harder action, asking that someone else would protect our good and increase our plenty. Lord, this morning what we want is more of you more of you, and that our heart would be turned in such a way that we receive you. I'm going to invite the band to come. I'm going to ask you to let your heart be softened so that it doesn't just soften long enough to rephrase, refreeze and be in the same place 
where we're benchmarking, comparing ourselves to other people. But instead this morning, that our heart might be soft enough to surrender to God's hands, to the most trustworthy and faithful place we could be, and the one who holds it all. Oh Lord, hear our prayer.